0: 30 years ago, Joanna, Doug, and I met at the University of Virginia's Darden Business School. Now, after years of experiences, we are visiting with our classmates to ask, if you could have a beer with your younger self right after graduating with your MBA, what were the key decision points in your career path? What advice would you provide? And what are the stories behind the lessons? our guest Dana Sims on drums for the Jet City Fix? Dana currently owns and manages Seattle's oldest live venue, El Corazon, one of Polestar's top 100 clubs worldwide. Dana's used every opportunity to his advantage. For example, while interning at Microsoft, he moonlit at Sub Pop, Nirvana's label, and he turned that into a full time position upon graduating from B school. Dana is exactly where he envisioned himself being when he graduated from Darden, living and working in rock and roll. Welcome, Dana Sims. Stay tuned at the end of the interview. We'll have a full track from Dana's new project, Ape Machine. Dana Sims. Yo.
1: Hey. Dana's in the house. How's it going? How are you, man?
0: Hey, I'm good. Dana. It's doing well.
1: So, um, so Dana, thanks for coming. And um, you know uh, we would definitely want to talk to you about what you've been doing creatively and business wise, whatever else you'd like to talk about. Really the idea here is as we, as we have been saying is, you know, if you had some words, words of wisdom to give to yourself when you graduated from B school, you know, what, what would that be? And, and tell us about what you've been up to and how'd you learn that? That's kind of the that's what we're trying to find out
2: well i would say the one thing is uh contrary to probably most of my peers if you uh, i'm assuming all of us went through john Megabow when we went to darden right (laughs) yes Yes, yeah so so i don't know how you felt but i thought the application to darden still probably is one of the most grueling things i've ever done in addition to the first year there but uh I'm probably anomaly in that when, if you remember, one of the essay questions was, where do you see yourself in five years after Dart and 10 years, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I'm pretty much exactly what I wrote.
3: Oh, that's great. Um, wow, that's and, and awesome.
2: I, and, I, and I think that's because, like, I don't know, I haven't had kids. I know you guys have kids and it's a different thing. But, like, it seems even though I don't have kids, I'm in a kid-oriented business. so I'm around kids all the time. <laughs> And a lot of them, you know, a lot of my friends that have kids, a lot of the kids I see, a lot of them just don't know what they want to do. They haven't figured it out. Um, Not that that's wrong, but uh, I don't know. I I became very passionate about music at a very early age. And uh, even though I did some other life experiences away from music to round myself out, uh, I just knew that I always wanted to spend as much of my conscious life in and around music as I could. And, uh, technically I'm a bar owner, but it's still a rock and roll job. I mean, I have rock and roll bands every night. Um, and that's what drives people to come spend money on booze. But, but, uh, but no, I mean, like what I would tell myself is, uh, you're lucky that you figured it out and that you've made it this far. Because, I mean, the thing is, like, here I am, I'm in my 50s, and I still get to be around rock and roll every day, which makes life awesome. Although a pandemic can throw a few wrenches in that. <laughs> but, 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 you know, the thing is, because my whole life is well-rounded in music, just because I couldn't make income off of my rock and roll job, Um, what kept me sane through the pandemic was spending a lot of time creating and writing music and recording with the people that I do make music with. And in that sense, feel very fortunate that there was an outlet to navigate what we all went through for the last couple of years, because, you know, a lot of people didn't have an outlet. They were stuck at home. Um, and you know, Netflix and chill and uh, comfort eating took on new meaning for a lot of people. (laughs)
4: Right, sure. um, and I and 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 to add, add to that, I mean you your your industry was obviously probably upended as much as any during the during the pandemic. And um but you know, I, I do I do feel for those like um, you know, Tom and Joanna and many of our classmates who had had kids at home during the COVID and, and what they had to contend with as parents, which uh you know, your business was impacted um but my kids were out of the house by the time the covid came and so i didn't have to pretend to be a you know a teacher or a surrogate teacher or you know try to make sure that you got 10 computers that are logged on to the internet at the same time so anyway but um well dana uh at what point did you figure out that you wanted to make you know, music and rock and roll a part of your, you know, career path? Was it, was it, how early was it?
2: Well, let's see. Uh, It In a weird way, it was sort of all predestined, even if I didn't know it, because basically both, well, my brother and my father both played drums, but I didn't know this when I got into drumming. And How it came about was my grandfather passed away and uh, we were cleaning out my grandparent's house and moving my grandmother into assisted living. And I found my dad's old drum kit in the attic when we were clearing out the house. And so I was five years old and, uh, took the drum kit home and, you know, attention spans that age can tend to wane pretty quickly, but I started slamming on that thing and didn't stop. So I started taking lessons when I was eight. Um, uh, went to my first rock concert at 12, which was, uh, Pat Benatar with David Johansson of the New York Dolls opening. Oh my and then God. my second show was uh, Ozzy Osbourne with Randy Rhodes three weeks before he died. And my third show was Black Sabbath on the Mob <laughs> Rules Tour. And after that, it was pretty much like over. I was obsessed. Um, I started playing with bands when I was 13, 13. Um, I spent most of my high school years uh, sneaking into blues bars with a couple of my best friends playing just with with guys in blues bars so we could get better and we could play. Because back then, there were no all-ages venues, there were no other things. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as strict on the IDs and the age group thing. Uh, and then when I graduated high school, my best friend and I, we moved out to Hollywood. We did the rock and roll thing. Um, the only conflict for me is I came from a very highly educated family. Um, I originally thought I wanted to go to USC or UCLA so that I could be in Hollywood because that's pretty much where it was all happening in the early eighties. Um, but then, uh, I got offered a full ride scholarship to Colorado state university and, uh, my dad basically bribed me to go to school there. And, uh, I went there very hesitantly, and after my first week there, I absolutely loved it. and uh, And so, did the school thing there. Uh, then I moved to the East Coast after I graduated. Uh, took a job with my fraternity, traveling around. So I got to go on tour, but it wasn't really a rock and roll tour. It was just sort of seeing the country. It's probably the only time I wasn't really actively playing music. But then um, there was two things behind that. Uh, just like I knew I wanted to do music, I also knew that I wanted to go to Darden from a very early age because my dad was a executive at R.R. Donnelly, and uh, one of his main clients, he was in charge of about uh, he was in charge of the art department at Donnelly, and he was in charge of about uh, forty illustrators and a hundred photographers, and uh, a couple of his main accounts were like the Sears catalog and the Colonial Williamsburg catalog. So he would go down every year to do stuff for the Colonial Williamsburg catalog. And we wrapped up uh one year uh when I was really young, flew down there and we went you know around uh Williamsburg and Yorktown, and then we went back through Charlottesville. And um, I remember the first time I walked up on the lawn, I was holding my dad's hand, I was a little tyke, and I walked up on the lawn and my jaw about dropped. I knew nothing at that age about the academic reputation of the school. I just was like, I want to go to school here. This is rad. Um, As I got older, I realized how hard it was to get in out of state undergrad, because it's such a good state school. So I went west, and then um, I knew a graduate degree from there was stronger anyway. It's the only school I applied to. Um, But the reason I took a job with my fraternity was they were based out of Lexington, Virginia. So even though I was traveling the country for the two years in between undergrad and going to Darden, I established residency in Virginia Mm. Um, and so uh, I sort of like, you know, got the in-state rate instead of the out-of-state rate. Um, but uh, but then once I, once I went to Darden, um, you know, the two things I did I was Darden, if you recall, um, I did an entertainment column for the Darden paper. So I wrote about a lot of rock and roll music that most people that went, we went to school would have never even been on their radar at that time. And then uh, I took a regional job with Atlantic Records and I was doing some college marketing and other things uh, on the side. Um, and then uh, and then I was able, you know, like I said, like I always knew I wanted to do music business, but I also wanted to be well-rounded. So a couple of things that I did while I was at Darden was, uh, uh, first off, like, I got a summer job at Microsoft I and mean, Microsoft was pretty
4: hot company at that time. I mean, there's, you still... were the, you were the only one from Darden that got a, that got an internship there, if I remember correctly.
2: Yeah, I, I was. And uh, the other thing about it, that was pretty funny was, uh, um, the night that they did interviews, the initial interviews, uh, was the night that UVA was playing North Carolina in basketball. And, uh, I got my interview slot and I was basically going to have to run over to this, to the arena to see the game. Cause like, you know, if you're going to go to an ACC school, you got to take in the basketball, you know what I mean? And so (laughs) um, I didn't really want to go to the game in a suit and tie and everything. So I just went to my interview in jeans and a t-shirt and I remember sitting in the hall because everyone wanted to work at Microsoft. A couple of people looked at me like, you know, what the F are you doing? You know, but I remember (laughs) I walked into the room for the interview and the first thing the dude said was like, he's like, finally someone that gets it. He's like, he's like, you know, you, you totally came prepared. This is what we're all about. Like, forget all that stuffy stuff. So that
4: that was, I I remember, I remember that story vividly because I remember you being the only one that, that showed up in jeans and a t-shirt and you were the only one, they got a job, and I didn't know. I didn't know the side story about the basketball, but that makes it even better.
2: Yeah, because I mean, who wants to go to a basketball game in a suit and tie? You know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, but I but I also think you know the thing is I feel very fortunate that I got to do the Microsoft job because I learned a lot. But even that, like, there's all this like predestined stuff because you know I got I got flown out. Uh, there was a there was a handful of us that got flown out for interviews after the initial ones. Um, I know Thomas Falk was one and there was a couple other people that were on the flight with me I can't remember, but, uh, um, even when I landed in Seattle, like that's when everything with the whole grunge movement was percolating and, uh, sub pop was in its infancy, which was the record label that engineered all that. And so since I was already out in Seattle, I reached out to them and I was like, Hey, you know, I want to talk to you guys. So I went over and, and talked to them on Microsoft's dime while I was out in Seattle and uh, ended up, you know, so, so I ended up getting the, the Microsoft gig and <laughs> the thing that was interesting about that is, so, you know, go out there and uh, this, this, you know, it's funny how things change and you take things for granted and things are, but when, when I took my job, I was a pro, I was working uh, as in the marketing department for a product called Microsoft Profit, which was a small business accounting program, which was to compete with like Peachtree QuickBooks and all all that stuff. Um, The week I got out there and started the main guy in in the group uh, was like, I'm leaving the group. I've been tagged to lead a, a new thing called Microsoft office. So he, he bailed to go do office. And then the second in command guy is like, uh, I, uh, I just had my kid, I'm taking paternity leave. So I'm a week into this gig and everyone who runs the product is gone. So they come in, I'm a, I'm an MBA intern and they're like, you're running the product for the summer. So it was like sink or swim. And all of a sudden I'm at like trade shows in San Francisco and having meetings with those people. And like uh, Melinda Gates, who wasn't Melinda Gates at the time was across the hall running Microsoft publisher. Uh, and uh, you know, actually got a couple of FaceTime uh, real FaceTime, not computer FaceTime with Mr. Gates. And uh, um, and so, you know, that was, that was very, very, rewarding and interesting however on the on the other side of it um even though seattle is beautiful and i i knew i i felt drawn to that place instead of spending all my free time uh enjoying the area i spent all my free time doing projects for subpop because uh ultimately even though i was at microsoft i i I felt like i had lived in la i'd done some work in new york um, if I could land a music job and live in Seattle instead of New York or LA, I, I mean, that would be amazing. So I just sort of forego, I, I forego sleep and I, you know, didn't really do anything touristy. I just like completely worked my butt off for Microsoft during the week and on nights and on weekends, I did a bunch of projects for Subpop. Um, so it was a great
4: summer came What what kind of, what, what kind of, excuse me for interrupting Dana, what kind of, what kind of projects were you doing for sub pop?
2: Well, sub pop, uh, was started by a couple of guys. Um, and, uh, it was one of those where they were just a small independent record label running things out of their closet and then Nirvana broke and they became billionaires overnight. And, uh, but you know, had all this other stuff they were working on. So, um, things grew very fast for them. So they had no uh, accounting procedures. They had no royalty procedures and things. So I basically built their entire royalty accounting system and did a couple other uh, things that didn't really require me to be in the office nine to five. It was more like as long as I had access to information and things. So I built built some databases for them and I built uh, basically the royalty accounting that they still use to this day. And then, uh, you know, so that, that, that's what I, you know, so it was, I was able to, to do stuff for them. And then, you know, because I was working for them when I did take a break, they would have, you know, artists in town or a show or this. So I would get, you know, I would go socially to a show that they were putting on and, and get to know the people and hang out so that it wasn't just like a lot of people that worked there had no idea that there was some dude doing stuff behind the scenes for them. Um, so that, that was a crazy summer, but it was very well spent. And, you know, I, I still to this day think that like the, the Microsoft thing, like I'm awesome company, glad I had the internship. Uh, but I, I think part of, part of it was, I was just myself from day one. Like I didn't have any, like, honestly, and I, I'm not just saying this, like I had no interest in working for Microsoft. It just was a, it was a gift of an experience. Um, but the the thing is like the you know the company has grown immensely and there's a culture at microsoft that like at least at the time i was there is like all of the people that worked at microsoft do could talk about microsoft and what was going on like like they'd be like what are you doing today it was like oh i'm going downtown to go to a show and they're like well what <laughs> like it, it was like almost like it was sacrilegious to do something outside of the bubble that is microsoft yeah um, and uh and you know so but i got a re- very rewarding experience out of it and you know i still have some friends there and obviously you can't live out here and not know people that work at microsoft Right, um, but uh in some weird way, I thought it was like the rock gods giving me an opportunity to get a great experience and be where I needed to be to lay the groundwork for what I really wanted to do. Um, so then I came back to Darden for the second year. Um, and, uh, two, two things about the second year. So, you know, we go through the first half of the year and then, uh, um, I was with a group of people that went to J- Japan. Uh, we blew off like half of our, uh, Christmas break and we went over and we were in Japan for a month and uh, working for Solomon brothers and uh, did a analytics of the Japanese pharmaceutical industry, um, which couldn't be further from rock and roll ever. But the thing for me is like, when I went to school, everyone like, you know, and this shows the time we went to school too. Everything in business school was completely obsessed with Japan. Japan was a much stronger economic power and we were sort of getting our butts kicked by Japan and a lot of different segments of the economy. And so I'd spent four years talking about Japan, studying Japan, hearing about Japan, this Japan, that. So the chance to go, actually, the, the two things about it first to be in Japan. And also the fact that, as you know, a lot of our classmates were very keen on working in wall street and finance. Um, which of all the different disciplines of what we had to do in our general MBA was the least interesting to me. Uh, But it was like, Hey, I can get Solomon brothers on my resume and it has an end date. So let's do this. So I, you know, I was able to knock off Japan and get, and get some, some investment bank experience, which was, you know, interesting. And, and the thing that was cool about that is we were in Japan for five, six weeks and Solomon Brothers gave us uh, bullet train passes, so every weekend you, you know you can get anywhere in Japan in three hours on a bullet train. So basically, by the time I was done there, not only had I crossed off a Wall Street firm, crossed off Japan, I'd seen every corner of that country, which was awesome.
4: Um, so then who I came was, back. Who, who was leading that trip? What faculty member Was it, um, was, it was it was it a Darden trip?
2: Yeah, It was a darting trip, I, yeah. I, I believe, uh, um, it doesn't matter, at? yeah. I can't remember, I just know that uh, my team was Aisha, um, and then uh, was it Lauren Santos? Okay, um, am I getting the name right? Um, but but anyway, I also remember too, it was, it was really fr- interesting because here you are in Japan with a couple of type A female MBAs and we'd be in meetings with these Japanese guys. And like the, the, the analysts would be in the meeting and you know, they've done all the work and they have the answers, but they can't speak unless they're deferred to from upper management. There's a very distinct hierarchy when it comes to jet Japanese business. And then we'd be sitting at tables in smaller meetings and uh, you know, they would, they would ask a question, of a, of a gentleman. And then he would turn to me and when they didn't understand, be like, what did she say? And you, you know, you have to sort of respect the culture you're in, but you could see the smoke coming out of their ears because, you know, they basically (laughs) had to, to, you know, but it it was a learning experience. It was interesting. So, um, so then after that, uh, the final thing I did was an overseas directed study. And so instead of spending the last, Part of Darden in Charlottesville, um, went to the Stockholm School of Economics uh, for some pretty intense classwork on like European policy and uh, things that were going on economically in Europe. And then the, the, the goal after doing that coursework was you were supposed to go finish the rest of your time in Europe for a company uh, while you were in Europe. Uh, well, as luck would have it, Sub Pop had an office in Germany. Um, so I went to the Stockholm school economics, hung out there, did all the coursework. And then I jetted over to a small town in, uh, Germany called Beverungen and, uh, did the same thing for the Germans that I did for the people in Seattle. Um, and the one thing I forgot in all that is they, they had three offices. They had Seattle, Boston, and Germany. Um, when we had fall break uh, the first semester, I went up to Boston and did a, the same thing in Boston. So basically by the time I, you know, so, so I'm wrapping up this project in Germany and, you know, we're getting ready to graduate. And I called up the general manager in Seattle and I was like, you know, I'm about to graduate. I want to come work for you. And he's like, well, you know, you're at a top business school and you're probably, you know, we probably can't afford you. And I was like, well, here's the deal. I, I've been at all three of your locations and I've worked with, everybody in the company. You need this, this, and this, you can hire three people at peanuts to do this, or you can pay me this and I'll do it all. And, uh, they said, deal. So I flew back to Charlottesville, I graduated and I moved to Seattle. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and it was the perfect time to be there because like things were really, I mean, things were really popping off. I mean, the amount of, I mean, to this day here, here we are, I mean, that was 1994, you know, here we are 30 years later and, you know, you can fly anywhere in America, get a rental car and turn on rock radio. And within an hour, you'll hear Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam anywhere in the country still to this day. Yep. Um, so it was a very profound uh, moment in pop culture. Um, so,
1: so working cool. for those, working for those uh, two guys that ran sub pop, um, what did you, you know, what did you pick up from them? That you think that you've retained and and brought into your into your current businesses. Well,
2: what I, what I what I retained was that um, and it was was very important to this day. The industry I'm in, ninety nine percent of the people that I work with, whether it's talent buying now, running a club, or whether it was in the record industry, uh, most of them do not have graduate degrees or MBAs. Uh, And most of them don't know what Darden is and they could care less what Darden is. Um, But they all in their own way have something incredible to bring to the table because a lot of them have street smarts that, you know, you don't get by being in high-end academia. Um, So what what I learned is that I was given an immense amount of resources and skill sets to use to my advantage. And I still do to this day uh, but it's truly stuff that I use in practice. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not accomplishing what I'm accomplishing just because I have darted on my resume or because I, I mean, like I, it, I'm truly respected for my performance and not what's on my piece of paper, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and, you know, that, that may not to me, that's rewarding and important because I'm, I'm, I'm valued on me and what I accomplish. I'm not valued on the things that I've been able to put on a piece of paper. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, uh, it's interesting. Cause I think back to when we graduated and, and like I said, I mean like ultimately I, I did the record company thing for 10 years and I was really good at it and it was a really good time to be selling records. <laughs> um, things started changing recognize that. And uh, there's the the record industry has been a lot of consolidation and acquisitions. And it really doesn't matter what your abilities are, your resources. It's just, they're big companies. They inhale each other. And a lot of quality people find themselves looking for jobs all the time. Um, I really enjoyed the quality of life that I had here. Um, I, I enjoy visiting New York and LA, but I don't think I'd ever want to hang my hat in either place again. Um, and uh, so when I started seeing that records were starting to wane as far as a reliable consumer product and, uh, and things were changing, um, that's when I decided, uh, you know, some friends that I had made gave me an opportunity to get involved on the, the live music side. And, you know, I joke all the time, I still have a rock and roll job, but, uh, alcohol and cigarettes are a much more stable product than compact discs and records these days. (laughs) And, uh, and I, and I can, I can tell you now after running a establishment for 17 years, that, uh, on most people's hierarchy of needs, alcohol and cigarettes are right under air and water for most people. (laughs) So it's a pretty reliable product. (laughs) Um, so even though I derive my income off alcohol and cigarettes, uh, what makes people come and consume alcohol and cigarettes is rock and roll. And uh, mm-hmm. and so um, it's it's like a marriage of a reliable way to make an income but to be around rock and roll all the time. And the thing that's great, as opposed to a record company where you work with a handful of bands and over time, the way that things are structured, uh, almost certainly at the end of most relationships, like, you know, Band stops selling records, label drops bands, animosity occurs. Um, the difference is when you run a live music venue, you get to work with a ton of bands and the ones that are awesome, you have back and the ones that aren't, you wish them well, and they go on down the road, you know?
1: Um, dana, dana when you when you decided to leave sub pop you took a another job in between right is that right right after sub pop before you started yeah you uh, sort of it?
2: like yeah when i when i left sub pop the first thing i did for years i went on tour with my band um like I, I had been playing the whole time but mainly locally a couple of regional things but the the band i was in at that time called the jet city fix um was, was the first serious like touring band post-college that I had been involved in. Um, so I took a year and basically we, we did, we did the U S three times and we went to Europe. So it it was cool. And then, yeah, I, I took a very brief job with a company called DMX music, uh, which was a music content company, uh, that basically like, uh, like when you walk into any major retailer, the music you hear is programmed by DMX. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like, you know, what you hear in the gap or what you hear in Victoria's secret or what you hear in the buckle or what you, I mean, like b- basically they were like the music programmers for all the major retailers in any shopping mall that you would, would go into or, you know, whatever else. And uh, I was brought in, I was a label relations manager. So basically I was just making sure that we were having proper licenses with all the major record companies so that we could use the music properly and not expose ourselves to copyright infringement and other things. Um, but that was, a, you know, it, it was a, it was a cool job for a short, it was a placeholder, but uh, when I started it, they had just acquired uh, the, the main competitor was Muzak and uh, the company in Seattle at the time was called AEI and they had been just acquired by DMX and so even though I was technically for DMX, everyone that I was working alongside was part of a company that was acquired. that was called AEI. And it was like one of those things where like I was there nine months and then DMX sold to something else. And it was another one of those, like that was my first foray to like, Oh, you know, we just acquired you and we don't need you anymore. So, you know, mm-hmm. it was a brief job. Um, but then, you know, the opportunities presented itself on the, the club side. Cause what, it, what had happened was I had invested in a couple clubs passively in town while I was doing all this other stuff. And, uh, the main guy that was running them was running the location I'm at now, uh, previous to El Corazon it was called the Graceland and uh, I was hanging out one night and he's like I'm losing both my talent buyers they're starting a new club up on Capitol Hill called Numos which is still around today mm-hmm. and uh and, I, and he's like I don't know what I'm gonna do because and I'm like I'll do it and he's like have you ever done it before and I'm like well I know all the people involved because all the the booking agents they all booked the bands at Sub Pop that I had like I knew all the people I'm like it's, it's a different role but the relationships already exist So I bought shows for him for a year and a half. And then, uh, he's originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm originally from Chicago. So we sort of have Midwest ties. His, uh, his parents started having bad health and he felt the need to, to, to move back to take care of his parents. So he he let me know he was going to be moving back and either closing or selling the business. And, uh, I was like, I'll buy it. And so I bought it. Uh, closed it for a month, remodeled it, and been running ever since.
4: And you re, and you re, why did you, what was your thought process behind rebranding it from Graceland to, um, to El Corazon?
2: Um, well, I mean, just because it, it was, uh, it was a new beginning. It was a different thing. And, and, uh, you know, I gave it a little bit of a facelift, um, and I just thought like, okay, so the, the building in the room I'm in has been a live music room or dance hall since 1910. Um, it all, I mean, Ray Charles played there, Hart played there, Hendrix played there. Um, but then in the eighties the and nineties, I mean, it was ground zero for the pop culture explosion, the grunge explosion. Pearl Jam played for their first five shows in the room. Nirvana played the first Seattle show in the room. Um, there's all sorts of things I could list off, but, the other thing that made it different from all the other scenes is that even though we make our money off alcohol and cigarettes uh, it's always primarily been an all ages venue as well. Um, so the reason we continue to get so many of the popular tours is that, well, most of my peer venues want the bar rings. Um, most of the, the touring bands want to play to kids. Ki- kids spend more money on merchandise and less money on beer. <laughs> um, so it's like the fact that we've been able to, marry the fact that we keep our lights on by selling booze, but bands make a ton of money off the kids uh, works. And so the location is, as you know, is right off the main exit to downtown. So it's right in the heart of downtown. It's been in the heart of a few different cultural explosions. It's in the heart of the city. So um, I decided to call it El Corazon because El Corazon means the heart. Um, and, you know, uh, there's not many, uh Mexican named businesses this far north of the border. So it's sort of not, you know, it's not like, it's not like every city you go to that has the great wall of China restaurant or the central tavern. Um, <laughs> um, it was sort of a u- unique name. And, and back then with liquor licenses is changed. Now you had to have food. So, uh, you know, we served Mexican food and burritos and tacos and stuff. Um, but uh, you know, all our decor was day of the dead. And, and, and basically you know, it's like, you're in the heart of downtown. You're the heart of the all ages scene. You're the heart of the grunge explosion. Uh, most of our regular client clientele are heavily tattooed. And if you have friends that are heavily tattooed, most of them eventually have a, have a heart tattoo somewhere. Um, so there, there was a lot of different tie-ins, um, in that respect.
1: So, um, when, when, you know, when I have visited the club, I've always been really impressed with how you've operationalized that business. Um, you know, is that something that was there before? Or did you do that? You know, I'm thinking about like, I remember you showing me how to how you would subdivide it so that you could keep it small, but yet up and. Yeah, no, that, you know, this, that's something I
2: did because the thing is that this is part of like the things that we would think about that. I mean, like, there are so many of my competitors that you go in and they have a sold out show and they have like one point of service. And, and it's like, when you're a high volume bar, you like when you're sold out, they will continue. If you give them the ability to buy drinks, they will continue to buy drinks. So, you know, the, the more points of service you have, the more money you're going to make, because if you have less points of service, you're, I mean, like, for example, like, I recreationally drink. I usually don't drink to the point that I lose my faculties. If I walk into, and I still go to shows wherever they are, cause I'm still very passionate about music. If I walk into a live music venue and it's easy to get a drink, I will have a drink. If I walk in and the line is like down the block, I'd be like, I'm just going to watch the show. I, I don't, I'm here to watch the You're show. The I don't want to spend, yeah. I don't want to spend 30 minutes in line. Right. So, right. So, so that, and then, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, my main room holds 800 people. Uh, My smaller room, which when I first took the business over was just a bar. uh, I put a stage in there too, and it it holds 200 people. So now I have two stages. I have two rooms. The one room holds 200. The room, which is the picture behind me right now is our main room. It holds 800, but there are a series of movable walls and curtains. I can scale down to 600, uh, 500 and 300 because flexibility is key. I mean, you know there are less and less bands in today's economy that can pack 800 person room because mm. attention spans are so short i mean a band that sold 800 tickets a year ago might only sell 250 now because the kids have moved on to something else with social media and with the immediacy of things it's not like when we were younger where there was like 10 or 15 bands and those are the 10 or 15 bands we all knew about and were the only 10 or 15 bands on the radio i mean not now these kids i mean you know, they find out about 10 or 15 bands an hour. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing it's hard to fathom is that they have like 10,000 songs in their phone, but they've never bought a record or a compact disc. So it's a, it's a different world. It's weird, but flexibility is key. Um, You know, being able to adjust because the, the more rigid, the more rigid you are in this business, the quicker you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just in your physical, I mean, like just flexibility is key in all ways. It's like, you know, crafting deals, you know, some places are like, this is our boilerplate. This is our deal. This is our cost structure. Um, I don't know. I, I think having flexibility and, and if, if, if someone has more worth and, in, in others there, you know, you can find creative ways to incentivize them to do business. Um, and then the other thing that I learned and, uh, Joanna can probably, uh, vouch for this living out here. Um, this city has progressively gotten more and more expensive.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: uh, if I was paying market rent on my location, uh, it would be very, very challenging. And so, um, you know, I was able to get my hands on the building a few years ago. And honestly, I don't think I would have survived the pandemic. if I wasn't my own landlord. Mm. And, and Dana,
3: when we talked in the, at the reunion, I think we were, I think, weren't you cutting a deal with the city about somehow they were going to tear it down or something like well, that. yeah. Well, just, just
2: prior to the pandemic, uh, a right. developer who owned, there are four parcels of land on my block. And uh, this particular developer now owns two of the four said parcels. And we were going to JV with them on a, on a, a double skyscraper um, on this block where the club would have been in the base of the building in yeah. brand new digs so that the club would have survived in it instead of being in a 1910 building would have been like modernized. Um, the pandemic uh, came at the wrong time for that plan to be realized.
3: How do you um, think your clientele? I mean, I, I know where the place is. I've, I've walked by it. I haven't walked in it yet. It is, it is old school. It's amazing. And how would your clientele feel about getting into a high rise to listen to their music?
2: Well, the, the way, the way the, cli- the clientele would be energized for two reasons. And the, 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 first is every club, like the way that rents are going in this town and the way things are going, like <coughs> the clubs that close down are not replaced mm-hmm. because it's just, they're it's too expensive. It's not a, it's not a sustainable business from scratch the way that the economies of scale are in Seattle right now. Um, And uh, you know, the 200 cap room that I have is one of the last like dive bars in Seattle, like all, all Mm -hmm. the venues of that size are gone. And now the bands have to literally go to the extreme far out suburbs to play shows at that size, because there's none of those types of venues in the city anymore. Um, And I am the largest independent venue in town. Everything that's bigger than me is owned by live nation or AEG. Yeah. And, and the thing is, um, you know, they broker some tours and shows where they get the whole country and other things. But I mean, the way I put it is this, like, if you come to my club and you order two well drinks, uh, depending on what you get, 10 or 12 bucks for two well drinks. You walk into the show box or the Neptune or any of the places that are owned by, and you just order two well drinks, 25, 30 bucks. Hmm. Um, not, not including and, and the so,
3: ticket of 200 bucks, right? Just to get in. Or well, well, yeah.
2: And, and so I guess all I'm saying is like, like the reason people like to come to shows here is because for certain genres of music, we get the shows they want to see and they can actually go out for the night and not feel like they spent their entire mortgage Mm -hmm. to go out for the night. Yep. Um, You know, we may not, like I said, and and the thing is, uh, technically there are some other rooms in town that are a lot sexier or nicer, but like, you know, in each town that has like, when you walk in our room, you know, that like stuff went down in this room for a long time, (laughs) you know? And, and, you know, is it clean? Yes. Is it presentable? Yes. But it's still looks like a rock and roll room it's not like some slick it's gotta shiny... have
3: the smell i bet it still yeah. has the smell yeah
4: yeah
2: so <laughs> lots of
3: people um,
4: dancing da- d- dana, yeah dana i've got a question for you when you bought um when you bought the nightclub and closed it down and rebranded it did you uh change the genre of music that the club was hosting or did that main that remained that remained
2: it was, okay. i mean, you know the thing is like, and, and it just goes to show you like when I first started doing this, uh, you know, 17 years ago, there were more bands that could fill a room my size or rooms bigger in town. Um, we're we're at we're at the point now where there are more bands where 800 is considered a big room as opposed to other things. So, uh, because of the size of our room, our our offerings are more diverse. We we do almost every genre of music, but our bread and butter is still hard rock, rock, metal, punk, you know, the edgier stuff.
4: Um, Gotcha. Gotcha. And,
2: and, uh, you know, um, I would say the only genre that is extremely popular these days that we do host occasionally, but we don't actively pursue is hip hop. We're not really going for Mm -hmm.
1: that. Yeah. One thing thing that I thought was, uh, was interesting about Dana's business a few years ago, uh, 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 I was looking at um, it and uh, I think I forget the name is, it's not billboard, but I, or is it that does the ranking of, Polestar. of venues? Polestar. Polestar. Right? Yeah. The, yeah. Polestar does the ranking of venues and they rank them in categories for different sizes. And, you know, at the time, you know, Dana's club um, when he was running, it was, you know, in the top 10 worldwide. For revenues for a club mm-hmm. of its size, and it's just—I thought it was really a testimony to to the, the way he managed his bookings, the way he managed the room, and how he got repeat business and, and all that. I think that's it was—it's uh, it's yeah, a lot of a lot of lessons to be learned there.
2: We're we're in a very competitive music market. Seattle's the 18th largest city in America, but we have seven live music venues that are in the top 50 in ticket sales in the world. Hmm.
4: And and, and your and your club at least b- before the before the pandemic, you were pretty much. I mean, you had bands six seven nights a week. I mean, pretty much nightly, right?
2: Yeah, we have we have two rooms. Uh, the smaller room has bands almost every night of the week, and then the bigger room in the slow in the slow parts, which would be the dead of winter and the height of summer, maybe fifteen like half of the month, and then in the spring and the fall, like you know. 90% of the night. So between the two rooms, we're doing about 480 to 500 shows a year. Hmm.
1: Yeah,
2: remarkable. Um, so talk you, us
4: through, go ahead, go ahead, Tom.
1: Yeah. It's a Dana. How have you managed, how do you manage your staffing over the years and, and, and maybe, uh, talk a little bit about what happened during COVID, but really, you know, do you have the same group of staff? Uh, yeah, you know? I'm
2: very fortunate. I mean, th- this is a business that's youth oriented and, a lot of places turn people over like a turnstile. Um, all my managers have been with me the entire 17 years. And, you know, yeah, you get, you get some turnover in like the basic, like security guards and sound people. and they but I mean, as far as management and other things, I, I'm very blessed to have the same people. And I would like to think that that's because of a couple things that the, the first is, um, I am not a micromanager. Uh, I, when I took this job over, my knowledge of music I felt was equal or untouchable compared to my peers. But uh, while I understood the restaurant and bar business, it's never been my forte. Um, or, like, even though I've played music my entire life, I'm not a sound guy uh, or an audio engineer, but I know what my ears tell me when someone is. <laughs> So the, the first thing is you identify people that are really good and experienced at what they do, and then you get them. And then you basically, like, I keep it simple. Like all my all my managers, they have no more than, like, when I sit down with them, are like, these are the five things that are important to me relative to your job. You know, the, these are the five things that are important to me. This is what I want you to focus on. Um, as long as you, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. Um, as long as you handle these five points for me, we're good. Um, if you need anything from me, I'm a resource for you. I've got your back. Uh, if you're not covering something on that list though, we're going to have to talk about it. Um, so the the thing is each, each, I would feel like if you sat down with any of my managers and asked them about that, they feel like they're running the business. Mm -hmm. Um, they also feel like I would do anything for them if they needed it, but I'm not crawling up their butt with a microscope. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's trust involved, but if you hire good people, you can sleep at night because your people are motivated and you know, they, they want to do good work. And, and, and so that's number one. Number two, half my staff is here year round. Half my staff are in touring bands. Um, I encourage my staff that are in touring bands to go on tour. It's not a problem. You know, a lot of employers, it's like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be in a van for three months. See you later. Um, it, It works. It works for a couple of reasons. The first is you're allowing them to pursue their creative dream. And the fact that they have solid work to come back to means that when they're back, they're motivated and they're like ready to go. Um, they feel like you have their back and you're supporting things that transcend the job. Um, the second thing, you know, cause it's getting harder and harder to just like a lot of the musicians, they'll quit a job, go on tour, come back, find another job. It's getting harder and harder to find a job, even though, you know, that's. I mean, like they can pay the bills in a city like Seattle. I mean, yeah, you could get a coffee swinging job or you could, you know, whatever, but I mean like something that actually is solid.
4: You know the um, other the other thing too, Dana. You know when they're out on the when they're out touring for three months, they're also doing in maybe like a non intentional way they're doing market research. Well, they, they, they're
2: they're not just doing market research. So here's the other thing I was about to get to is that the the business side of music is a very small world. Like just like there are musicians out there, most of the people that are professionally tour managing bands or merchandising for bands or driving bands. Mm. I mean, they move from one tour to the next. And so the fact that half my staff tours, there, there isn't a tour that rolls up to our club when they all jump out of the bus or the band that someone doesn't know someone that works for me because the guy that's in the band that's playing here tonight, is the door guy for the main club in St. Louis. And three of my guys have played that club in St. Louis. You know I mean? Like it's a very, mm-hmm. it, it, and, the, and the fact that all these people have been here for, it's, it's just like every time someone rolls in, the ice is broken immediately. Cause it's, it's, it's like, there's, there's a camaraderie, there's a brotherhood or a sisterhood that like exists because I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very unique life touring in a band and, and you know, like, you know, you can watch the movie, but I mean, like, people, it, it's a very, people that do it are very dedicated. And even though there's movies that glamorize the lifestyle, it's not really like that for most working bands. I mean, they basically go through 23 hour, hours of boredom for one hour of complete adulation on a daily basis. Um, it's, it's not as, um, you know, crazy and amazing that, uh, you know, we might be led to believe, but, but it's very helpful when, when half like you said, when half your staff is out there all the time, you know, not only are the, most of them like, you know, we're wearing your, your hoodies everywhere and talking to other people at our clubs. I mean, they're building relationships because a lot of the top tier venues in the other cities are made up the exact same way. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's amazing. Like, and now that, you know, we've been doing this and the same people been here for so long, I mean, most nights, you know, a tour rolls in and it's like, you know, half, half our staff knows, crew members and band members on a first name basis. And that makes it easier to put on a good show and for uh, unnecessary conflict or uh, issues to arise. It's very, it's much easier to diffuse any potential hurdles.
4: Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I could see, you know, I I was, I was originally going to the market research aspect of things, but the relationships, you know, that they build along the road are, are even more, more valuable. You know. But
2: but you're right. The mark I mean, like even when I tour, it's like, you know, I mean, every every club that I go into can be a learning experience. Like what are they doing? Like, oh the other day, like, oh, that's really cool. I never thought of doing that. Or I mean, um, you know, if you're willing to take the time to have some conversations and to get to know some people, you can learn a lot of very interesting things.
4: How has uh, obviously the you know your industry was impacted as much or more than any other, these last couple of years. Um, how, how has that been? And, and are there, you know, is there light at the end of the tunnel for you?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been interesting. And I mean, that was, Tom had asked about the, the staff. So, um, when we, when we were forced to shut down, um, uh, because most people in our business, even though they're technically my employees, a lot of them they don't—they're not considered full-time because their work is so sporadic, depending on things. Because we're event-based and not like forty hours a week-based. Um, so I, I instantly did some fundraising for my employees. Um, I, I, I was able to, uh, and it is a testament to our customer base too. I, I was able to put, you know, regular stimulus into my employees' pockets during this, just from our customer base. Um, which is, you know, rewarding in its own space because I was actually sort of shocked at how much money I was able to raise. And it just shows that like, okay, we're doing the right thing because like everyone's going through this yet. Everyone's feeling like, yeah, I have so much fun at that place. And those people take care of me. I want to take care of them. Um, and it and that also was the
3: keep music live, right? The keep music. No, live no, no. This,
2: this is separate that, from that. This is just zone doing GoFundMe okay. for our staff. Cool. And then. You know, I, I, in addition to creating music during the pandemic, the, the 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 three things that came out of it was I spent a fair amount of time fundraising for my staff, um, and then the state formed a, a trade association called WANMA, which stands for the Washington Nightlife and Music Association. Brought all the venues together in the state, and we worked hard to get some grant money and and you know champion our industry and sort of. Uh, educate our legislators on the economic impact of our industry uh, on the state, which is profound. Um, I mean, you know, we, we are still very uh, much part of the whole tourism, uh, you know, that comes out here. Uh, like I said, when you have eight venues that sell the amount of tickets we do, I mean, we have a lot of great events. So a lot of people that come out here and make that a part of their, their, their trip. Um, And then there was a national organization called NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, which was formed. And uh, we were able to, you know, even with all this stuff, uh, engineered uh, uh, shuttered venues operator grants that were managed by the SBA where all of us got, like, substantial amounts of money so that, like, you know, uh, I'm not worried about keeping the lights on right now. like, um, And, you know, considering that every legislator had every industry at, you know, at their doorstep asking for help and relief during all of this. Um, somehow we were able to get some of the primary members of both sides of the aisle to champion our industry. And I mean, m- most of us that are legitimately run in a legitimate way, uh, you know, we're able to, I mean, we, we were able to get grants that were uh, 45% of our 2019 gross revenue, which is a substantial amount of money. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah and it and it helps you help helps you weather the storm you know well and the, well, and the other thing too is that
2: the, the whole thing and then and then the keep music live was a fundraising thing in the state that was put together by the state organization and like all the the big bands from here like Pearl Jam and Macklemore and Brandy Carlyle they all came together and we raised a bunch of money that way too so we, we, we've been fortunate that you know we have a product that connects with people um we're, we're not a you know, we're not like Procter and Gamble. Like we provide memories, we provide experiences, we provide good times. So uh, we were able to fundraise on a macro level and on a micro level. And and the thing is, uh, the live music venues realized that like we're part of the ecosystem. Like we provide a place for all the artists to make their money and to hone their craft. We also provide a place for all the gig workers and other things to work. Um, and so. The, the other thing is not, not everyone went this way. I mean, some people got their grants and then like Omicron hit and they shut back down and left their employees, you know, sort of shit out of luck. Pardon my language and whatever else. But I always, once I got that stuff, looked at it as like, you got to pay it forward. So we got those grants and even before we opened, like, you know, we weren't functional on a daily basis on shows because it's not like when they tell you, you can reopen, that uh you know tour buses roll up the next day these things are planned months in advance so we had to sort of work towards that um so one of the things i did is like hey you know we've been shut for 16 months and it's it's amazing to see what happens to a facility that isn't used for 16 months um I mean, when I, I mean, I had periodically stopped by and and check things, but I mean, like literally when you get down to like, Oh, we're going to reopen. Like when I walked in, there was like, Holy crap, we got a lot to do. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) um, and and so, and so basically one of the things I did is, uh, I'm like, Hey, we aren't going to have shows for a month, but let's, uh, let's all start getting together and let's have work parties and let's paint and let's, uh, let's clean and let's whatever. So, um, all the camaraderie came back. So instead of just walking mm. back to your first shift, like for a month, we were all together for hours a day, having pizza parties and, and like giving, you know, getting the place cleaner than it's been since grand reopening, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it was great because, you know, they were all able to make some income because they also knew when we reopened that, you know, that, when we first reopened, it was gangbusters because people hadn't been out for a year and a half. And you just put a show up and it would sell out before you even did any marketing just because people were so hungry to get out. But then, like, shortly after that, that's when Delta came. And so all these people were stuck with tickets, but then they were paranoid about going out. So, like, the redemption rate on tickets was pretty bad. And so, even though economically you could get out of the shows because you had sold the ticket money, half the people weren't showing up to buy drinks. So the revenue wasn't like, where it should have been Mm. um and then uh um and then you know i feel fortunate that the the whole omicron thing came during the holidays because that's traditionally a slow time of year um i feel like if we were in a regular schedule with all the shows that we usually do that it would have felt like march 2020 on steroids on the amount of cancellations and other things because i mean we're past that now and you know it was a quick spike and things are trending the right direction but like you know, it was pretty hairy there for a few weeks and the, the clubs that had packed calendars, they were really, really taking it in the shorts. Um, but I mean, I guess the thing is, it just goes back like through all of this. Um, I gave my employees ways to make money. I supported them, even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't primarily like their job, it was like, Hey, I still, this is something that can further the betterment of the club and I can put money in your pocket. And we can spend some time together. Um, and, you know, and, and then the same thing, it's like, you know, you can bring shows in here and, and, you know, there's so many variables now. I mean, there's bands that in normal times are slam dunk sellouts. And now because maybe their target demographic or people that are over the age of 40 and not as many people over the age of 40 are feeling comfortable about going out into mass groups of people yet, um, you know, they're doing numbers that are half of what they used to do. Um, but, you know, you're able to pay them what they're worth and not be bummed about it because my opinion is like these grants were given to like spread amongst the ecosystem, not to just hoard and like screw your employees and screw the people that come and draw people to your venue to make money. Um, I I think, you know, it's not sustainable over the long haul, but I mean, you know, things are starting to wind down now. I mean, like, you know, yesterday uh, we no longer have to do VAX requirements and you know, we're a couple of weeks away from masks going away. And I mean, that's going to make a lot of people more uh, enticed to go out. And I, f- I think if, you know, there are still some people who are gonna be hesitant and we're going to get through the spring and there's going to be sort of this feeling out period, but if things go well and there isn't some other spike that we're not seeing that's going to wreak havoc through the population, I think by summertime we should be back to what most people would assume is normal. But, uh, you know, having a business that brings large amounts of people together is an interesting <laughs> business model during a pandemic. Yeah. But, you know, you had said earlier, I mean, one of the, when we were doing the fundraising and we were talking, I mean, this type of business was the first to close and was the last to reopen.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, but, and music is so, I mean, so vital to people's lives. And, for me, it's amazing how you've just kept true to yourself. You've created a platform for your team to not only um, create and give them that space, but, um, and also just run a great nightclub. And you also follow the same pattern, meaning like you're going to be on the road soon with the ape machine. Right. Yep. And um, that is, amazing it's like you're passing on how you live your life to others and i think that's a great testimonial to not only you being a great businessman but just and i i swear you you took advantage of every single thing that darden offered i'm just amazed at that story so me too um uh, go ahead sorry
2: sorry but but
3: no no and and i'm always curious my my husband grew up kind of in a van with his mom touring a lot of the Pacific Northwest because she was a musician. She still is. And um, he knows that's a hard life. And I'm just curious, what are you most proud of in terms of promoting a creative team? Like, I don't want to say like, I don't, you know, like what, what band is your most what brings you joy? Like what group or what band have you brought up from whatever and created space for them to be their greatest? Are there any ones that you're most proud of?
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of bands that were like kids in high school that played their first shows here and have gone on to get major record deals and gone to do things. And I mean, it would be hard to nail down just one, but the fact that I've been able to give that platform to a lot of different people. I mean, you know, I mean, there are yeah. ones that happened in this room long before I had this room, but I mean, it's like, since I've had this room, there's, like, Macklemore. I mean, Macklemore used to beg me to open up for Juggalos on a Tuesday, and now he's, like, the biggest hip-hop guy in the world. Um, and, you know, you know, and, uh, I mean, all the bands that started here, that got record deals, which, like, would mean something in alternative music but might not be on your radar, like uh, Fall of Troy or Schoolyard Heroes or Aiden or This Providence or uh, HIMSA or... Um, I mean, it, the list goes on. So they're
3: they're, they're they they are coming back to Daddy Dana, who hooked them up with their first gig. And well, well the other thing that's cool is because,
2: you? because we're all ages and we work with kids. A yeah. lot of kids like we're the one like if you, if your first show if you grow up in this area, unless you go to a summer show at the amphitheater, your first rock concerts are in this room, and that's what I'm most like. Whenever I talk to people, they're like you know, like earlier, I told you the first concerts I went to when when people don't know who I am and I'm just like sitting on an airplane or I'm talking to people, most people, their first concerts growing up around here were in my room. And that that, that to me is golden. Um, That means everything to me because that's what I'm still the most passionate about because when I grew up in Chicago, there was no all ages music. I missed a couple of my favorite bands growing up simply because I wasn't old enough. It wasn't because I didn't have the passion and want to see it. The fact that I can provide a place for kids to discover music because music can be such a positive force. Like you said, Um, I mean, it's been my entire life. So of course it's a positive force. Um, You know, the other thing that I would say, like we were going back um, when one of the things I think most about, like, uh, and I've attended all the reunions. Like I'm very, uh, I enjoyed my time at Darden immensely. I value the friendships I have. I mean, we've all on this call spent time together away from uh, post-Darden. Um, I mean, Doug, you know, you've put me up in your house when I've been on tour. Tom, same thing. You've even come up and spent some time in my club on some projects and other things. And we've had meetings with brainstorming sessions with record execs in LA. I mean, like, um I, I value that because it's just such diverse, amazing, intelligent, great people. Um, one, one of the things I think back to though, like when we were partying and, and, and going to Darden and talking about our futures and what we were going to do, I, I always remember a couple of our classmates would say like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to take that six figure job with the investment bank, or I'm going to take that six figure consulting job and I'm going to put a bunch of money away. And then I'm going to go do what I really want to do and keep going to these reunions. And you keep hearing how they're making a ton of money, but maybe their health's not so good. And they're still doing a job they're not really passionate about. And it's hard for them to walk away because they got a family now and they're making really good money. And my, my, my main thing, like whenever I like, do some of these interviews with prospective Darden students or when I talk to all the kids is that if you're fortunate enough when you're young to to understand and know what you're passionate about, don't put it on the shelf. Just go, go for it. If you're really that passionate and you give your, but you give yourself the opportunity to have as much of a skill set as possible. Um, if you stay focused on that, um, and you believe in yourself, you can get there. And and don't 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 take a time out because if you take a time out, you're going to find yourself at middle age, and you're not going to be where you want to be. Mm-hmm. That
1: is. That's time. great.
2: That's great. Because well, I'm sure
4: Mike. All <laughs> yeah, right. Good stuff. Yeah. I know. I, I know. Because I know.
2: we we all, we all we all stay in touch with a lot of our classmates, and I'm sure we all know some of our classmates that did just that.
4: No, I,
3: i've done it a chapter in my career and 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 it's and it's emotionally and physically grueling yeah. and it's you're spot on and that is a great
2: and, and i i guarantee delight. you that i probably i probably don't have as many zeros on my bank account as a lot of our mm-hmm. classmates but you can't put a price tag on happiness and peace of mind and what i do is very rewarding and you know mm-hmm. I, I sort of call it like I I sort of call it like I'm on the music, I'm a musical hamster. I'm on a hamster wheel because I I would, I would spend money to do half the things that I do to make money. You know what I mean? Oh, that's Um,
1: great. That's the quote. I'm writing that
3: down. I'm writing that one down. I'm going to spend
1: money to do. Um, well, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you on tour. Is eight machine going to be playing Reno or someplace South? I mean,
2: we're, we're, we're playing a fest in Austin in July and we'll definitely route down there and route back. So, I mean, most routings either go up or down the West coast and then back through like, you know, Colorado, Salt Lake, Reno kind of thing. So I would say the chances are chances are pretty good that I'll be at or near your doorstep. And of course I'll
1: let you know. Right. Um, And are you touring with any of your other projects? You're doing Witchburn as well. And then, then, uh, yeah.
2: Witchburn needs to find a new singer. We've, 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 we've got an album done, but we don't have a singer. Um, Really proud of the record, but um, you know, so proud of the record that we're not going to settle on a singer. So it might be a while. It could be next week. It could be next year. We'll see. Um, And then uh, Eight, eight machine was a band that Witchburn toured with uh, years ago. And then, uh, I did a tour with them in November of 2019, right before all this started, they, like they called me up cause we had toured together and they're like, we need a drummer. And I was like, heck yeah, I'll do it. And, uh, and so, and then after that, I've sort of been de facto in the band and then we made a record during the pandemic that's done now in one of the tracks I sent you. And then, uh, um, and then, uh, and then I have a, the, the series band I was in up here before, which brand was called the jet city fix. And we're actually doing a reunion show, uh, later this month. Uh, we, you know, we play once every couple of years, but a couple of the members of that band and me have a new thing called the bird hex that we recorded a lot of stuff during the pandemic. And that'll probably start getting active here shortly too. But, uh, but I'm at the point now where like all the projects I'm in are people that I've been playing music with for years. And, you know, there's a, you know, a more like, the people that I'm in the room with is just as important as the music I'm making. Like everyone that I'm making music with these days are people that I love and respect and have been uh, doing with for a long time. Like I still get hired to do occasional studio stuff here or there, but as far as any band that I'm going to say I'm in the band and I'm going to do anything with, I mean, you know, most of the usual, I mean, you know, most of these people you've crossed paths with them and um, you know, there's a level of comfort, respect and love there that I don't think I'd get walking into a new situation really uh honored to be asked um but before we wrap up here I just uh, is there is there anything else that you wanted to get at that we didn't cover or is there anything else that
1: you guys
3: it wanted? was easy you just you i from my perspective it was beyond
1: it was it great, was, it, was great. It, it was great your yeah. story is
3: amazing dana it's it's amazing <music>